Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Talking local, globally. This podcast explores ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development, in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris Agreement. Welcome to the fourth episode of Capital Locust. This week, it's a great privilege and pleasure to be talking to Rajivan Krishnanaswamy, who is an independent senior consultant based in Chennai, India. Rajivan has worked for 18 years in the Indian civil service, from city-level administration to the prime minister's office. He was CEO of the Tamil Nadu Urban Development Fund a public-private partnership to finance civic infrastructure that had issued pooled bonds for financing municipalities. He also worked at Cities Alliance, the World Bank, and was president of the Institute of Financial Management and Research. So Rajivan is a real expert in municipal finance. One of the insights coming from uh, Rajivan's uh, experience is the importance of local government access to market at the right price and the right tenor, that is the right length of the loan, and how it's far better, if possible, for a broad financing of local government investments to work through a strong local government bond market at the domestic level than to have individual project finance, which can sometimes separate off developed areas of a city that can pay a revenue to some kind of project bond and undeveloped areas in the same city, which are just surviving on the regular public finance. It can lead to very uneven development in some cities and local governments. And to some extent, one could say that the physical form of the city, the way the city looks is to some extent a function of the form of the finance of the city. And this is as much true for cities in any continent of the world and at all stages of their development. So looking forward to hearing what Rajivan has to say about municipal finance. Uh, Rajivan, uh, welcome to the podcast Thank you so much for agreeing to participate, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy your insights on local government finance and local development finance. Now, Rajivan, one of the things which is in vogue right now is the idea that we should bring the private sector in as if they were ever left out, uh, and that um, private finance is the solution to a lot of the issues around local economic development and local government, the financing of urbanization, financing of cities, etc. However, as you uh, quite lucidly point out, one needs to be a little bit more sophisticated when one talks about private finance, because private finance is everything from the small shop on the street corner to an international conglomerate like Amazon or a huge bank. You've talked about the difference between the private financing and delivery of public services and the private financing of the public purse through the bond market. Could you please distinguish a little bit more between those two poles and how you see it, Rajivan? Uh, Over to you. 
Uh, thanks a lot, David. Great pleasure. And yes, I agree that to sharpen uh, methods of thinking, especially when it comes to instruments of finance, number one. And secondly, at the level at which we're talking, is it at the municipal level or is it at the systemic level, is, uh, is a moot point. So yes, to take off from uh, what you started off with, there is obviously a need to leverage private financing for public infrastructure at the municipal level. What does that mean? It means that given the scale of needs, water, sanitation, now the climate change investments, the volume of these investments and the value of these investments are so large relative to the need that it's an obvious proposition that all the government grants in the system can get you nowhere, especially in most of the cities of the developing world. Therefore, just for an example, if you have $100 in the system of government grants, there's no sense that $100 is never going to be enough to fill your needs. So the proposition that you need to leverage, use this $100 to bring in private financing at the systemic level to make that $100 can probably get you 10 streetlights you want to get. Use that $100 to service a borrowing of, say, $1,000. So today you get, instead of 10 streetlights, you can get 100 streetlights. Otherwise, there's no possibility of scaling or replication. It's a very simple way of saying that you can't create capital without borrowing at a systemic level. Now, in the case of municipal finance, what do we really mean by that? We mean that in any country, it would be South Africa or India or Vietnam or Kenya or Uganda, Everywhere in the world, you have three pillars of municipal finance. What are these pillars? One is your own source revenues. These varies across countries, but typically revenues that the municipality picks up, like property tax, some countries business tax. Then you have assigned revenues, things which come from upstairs, higher levels of government. You spend some of this, and the surplus is used to leverage. And that leverage means the third pillar of municipal finance, you use your revenue surplus, not just to make infrastructure of today, but for infrastructure tomorrow by borrowing. That's how you create capital. Therefore, at a systemic level, there are three pillars, the own source, the assigned revenue, and the third critical aspect, how you use the own and assigned sources to raise private debt to finance public infrastructure. And it's no great mystery to say that countries where they have this system in place, United States being the best example, where about six to seven trillion dollars of private finance is used to do essential infrastructure, water and sanitation, environmental infrastructure, some landfills, etc. A similar situation obtains in Europe, where you have the, in France you have the ADL, in Sweden you have the Commune Invest, where you have instruments which can leverage private market finance into urban infrastructure. It could be by the means of municipal bonds, it could be through the lines of credit like Dexia used to do. It's immaterial what form the uh, finance, private finance takes. Bond markets work in the U.S. when there's made more attractive because of tax exemptions and stuff like that. Long-term 
private finance flows through, used to flow through banking systems in Europe, like Dexia and so forth. But that's immaterial. That's a point of detail. But the fundamental point is, if you want to create a system that finances projects, rather than financing projects directly, then you need to have a system that can leverage. And that can be leveraged through bonds or through uh, through a financial intermediation system. That's one level of macro systemic need to get your cities up and running and you know create infrastructure on a scale which makes a difference. Otherwise, you're stuck in a low-level, lousy equilibrium trap. The second aspect is, I think, at the project level. Now, if I'm a uh, mayor of a town like Bangalore or Nairobi or Kigali, I have a choice. I have three types of infrastructure from a financing point of view. I have the first type, you know, which is small parks, roads, street lights. So typically you don't need medium-term planning. They don't need medium-term finance and can typically be financed out of grants and own source revenues. Then there's this middle type, the so-called missing middle, where you need medium-term planning. It's a 10-year sanitary landfill. It's a sewer system. It takes time to build. It requires a mixture of grant and debt. It can never be financed by user charges. That needs a mixture of debt and grants. Thirdly, the last one, where private equity has a natural home, is where the cash flows from the projects are enough to service both debt and equity. So whether I'm Glaxo or uh, uh, you know Bechtel or I'm a private investor and I put equity, I'm able to get returns from the project, which are enough to satisfy my dividend expectations. What are they, these kind of projects in municipalities? No great wonder. These are typically projects like car parks, maybe some markets, multi-story parking, etc., where there's no need for municipalities to put, at least conceptually, an investment into them, and the projects really pay for themselves through the revenue streams that they earn through users. So this is a project level decision, whereas the capacity to leverage private finance into the municipal system is a systemic setup. So there cannot be any confusion regarding the two, and they're not interchangeable at all in any meaningful sense. And in fact, you have to make the argument that in the missing middle at the municipal level, the sanitary landfill or the uh, wastewater system or a water treatment plant, assets which are long-term and which require medium-term planning, it is possible to get the private sector in a variety of ways. It's possible to get the private sector directly as an equity investor. It's possible to get the private sector as an affamash, what, you know, as a maintenance guy after the capital is constructed using the funds of the municipal, municipality. It's possible to do either of these, but in both cases, unless the municipal revenue streams are solid, and unless the municipal revenue streams can leverage, you can't get the private sector at the project level. Because, I mean, uh, unless you're talking about projects, you know, absolutely a mall or a car park, which is not really urban infrastructure at all. So, yes, so to sum it all up, I think. At a systemic level, national governments and cities have to work together to establish these three pillars. 
so that you have a revenues which can attract private debt which can finance public infrastructure then at the that is create that is creating a system that finances projects so that every time the it's not an innovation for a mayor to find finance like any corporate like any other entity in the system finding finance is not a matter of heroism it's a matter of systemic use of funds then of course there is the choice of delivery of a project at a local level which can be using either private equity if you think returns are great it can be using uh the private sector as a maintenance contractor for your long term assets if you think efficiency is the key but to confuse efficiency considerations thinking that that's going to it's really a financing which is coming in is awful because nobody can i mean no private sector guy can bring in equity and finance a leaky bucket so i think broadly speaking one is it a system level distinction needs to be made between financing projects and financing a system that finances projects that's broadly it rajivan thank you very much indeed i like your distinction between financing a system that finances projects and financing projects and i like your disaggregation between amongst the projects the small type that can be financed really by public sources alone the middle type which need a mixture of public and private finance and really they can't move ahead without both it needs both and you say the landfill and these kind of things and then the larger type which could be perhaps a subway system but it could also be perhaps a shopping mall or a car park which as you interestingly point out in some ways is not really urban infrastructure at all it sometimes it's just a private sector operation so i'd i'd like to now kind of drill down on two elements of this The first one is going to be the efficiency of that leverage of public funds. There's a big debate about this. How can we be sure that the public funds that go in either in your mid-level or maybe towards the larger side are efficiently used and that there is not undue subsidy to the private sector? And I think there are two big considerations here. One is the design i mean as you may know in the united kingdom the national audit commission criticized the private finance initiative which was brought in under the tony blair gordon brown government because it gave undue subsidy to the private sector to the detriment of the taxpayer for a very long period of time so whilst it did get some hospitals built it turned out according to the national audit commission that these hospitals would have been built more cheaply if they'd been built using public funds alone and that's in the united kingdom and then the second issue on the efficiency of course is the dangers which many people who don't necessarily understand municipal finance will always point to uh, the capacity the corruption etc uh, etc et what is to avoid uh, inefficiencies um uh, at that level uh, back to you uh, rajivan yeah i think the second one is much easier to handle i mean i'm sure from your experience david and from mine and any look at deficiency or you know governance corruption issues at local government i think both of us would most of us would agree that uh, corruption and waste is not really related to the levels of government 
I'd be very hesitant to say that local governments in India, for example, are more corrupt than the state government. Uh, state governments, you know, somehow more corrupt than the national government. It's not that the levels of government really, I mean, the kinds of corruption change, sure. I mean, it could be defense contracts at the national level and it could be road contracts at the local level. But to make the argument that local governments are more corrupt than national governments is a tough one to really substantiate with evidence. But even if it were so, if the hypothesis were so and it has never been tested, the argument would then be that if you believe that local infrastructure can best be created at local levels based on local priorities, if that's your national policy, which seems to be quite across the world since 1990s, the wave of the, then to cut down on corruption, you would strengthen counterparty institutions like audit, ombudsman, and something like that. And at the end of the day, in every part of the world, I mean, if you have empowered mayors, there'll be at least, I don't know, about 25% who are lousy, 25% who are very good. And so, I mean, it's just like a national government. 25% of your ministers would be nice and 25 would be corrupt. Related to corruption is this question of capacity. So if I never try out somebody, how do I make a judgment that he doesn't have capacity? I mean, it's running around in circles. Like, if I were to say that that was the argument used in the old colonial system, that you can't handle handover powers to this new guys because they lack the capacity. Unless you try, you never know. So that's a relatively easy argument to sort of clear up because it's something which is not based on evidence or, you know, on history or any logic. It's difficult to sustain. But the earlier argument that you made is a powerful one. The question of what are the criteria by which you decide whether to use public uh, private debt to fund publicly owned infrastructure, that means I borrow money and build a hospital, and then I may let it out for maintenance to a private sector guy, and what the French call the affamage kind of contract, versus giving a direct PPP of the type you mentioned, you know, I give, make the guy build and, uh, uh, and services equity returns for maintenance as well. Now, obviously the question then is, who is taking the demand risk? Because if the returns to equity typically in finance are a return for risk. Now, if I'm a private sector guy and I'm going to build a hospital in Sussex or something like that, and, and I'm going to get payments irrespective of number of patients or I'm building a school, irrespective of number of kids, I'm having no, no demand risk. So basically, you're, it's a, you're, you're servicing my equity. You're paying me dividends when I'm but there's no risk, and I'm having no demand-side risk at all. Whereas if I'm making chewing gum and I was selling it in the market, then the competitor could, you know, potentially bounce me off. So my, the returns to producing the private good is basically a reward for my risk in a competitive market, which is not so in the case of an equity PPP where the demand risk is taken out. On the other hand, if the same hospital is built with private finance, private debt, it could be through a bond or it could be through a loan, or it could be whatever the format of the debt is, is largely irrelevant. But if it's a private source of finance, which is a loan to the public municipality and they build the hospital or the school, 
and the asset is owned by the municipality, then clearly there is no need to service dividend. There is only the need to service debt. Therefore, the capital costs automatically, by definition, are at least 7 to 8% lower. I mean, if we assume that the cost of servicing equity is around 8%, then clearly you have a capital cost of a project which is much less than that which is of an equity finance PPP. That doesn't still preclude you from saying that once I have this asset which is built by using private debt but owned in the public sector, nothing precludes you from saying, oh God, my hospital guys are lousy, my school teachers, I mean the guys who maintain my schools in the public sector are terribly inefficient. And therefore for efficiency reasons, I would contract out the private sector. And in this case, the private sector's investment is not in the capital of the school or in the capital of the hospital. But he's just got to buy some brooms and, you know, chemicals to clean the place up or replace the furniture or whatever. So the takeout or the dividends which the private sector would demand would obviously be less. The whole operation would be cheaper. And if the private sector guy is more efficient than the municipal system in maintenance, then you get an efficiency gain as well. But the consideration of an efficiency gain should always, and I presume it's never done, but it should be done, that if I was saying that the private sector is a better guy, better at street cleaning, then I have to have a base case that what is my public sector doing? Is it doing 80% of the garbage? And therefore, I would need the private sector to do at least 90% or whatever. So an efficiency gain argument is made well when you have the base case established. And I'm not very sure about the UK contracts, but I don't know whether the base case efficiencies in those cases was ever established. What was the public sector doing? And can we say with confidence that after getting the private sector in, we've got an efficiency gain of 5%, 10%, and therefore it was well worth it. So in the absence of that argument, it becomes extremely difficult to justify the invitation. Yes, Rajivan, thank you so much indeed for that insightful presentation on the issue of the efficiency. To us, I think, at um, UNCDF and with the National Municipal Investment Fund pipeline that we are working on, this is critical. And the coalition uh, for a, a, a global financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments, I think we'll have to make this case. Because as you know, our premise is that we cannot actually meet the urgent requirements of confronting climate change, migration, and urbanization, which are all coming together in a triple whammy. We cannot meet this immense challenge uh, of these growing cities without looking at ways of efficiently using all the sources of capital available. And you've painted a very detailed panorama of how that can be done. And I think in passing, I'm going to agree with you on the corruption capacity issue. And in fact, I couldn't agree with you more. I recall when I began my career working in local governments, whether it was in the UK or in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, every time I went to a central government entity, uh, be it in Westminster, or in Maputo, the question was, well, those guys locally, they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have any capacity. And every time I went locally, I saw people who were juggling multiple tasks, 
with efficiency and with uh, expertise and being fully aware of the environment in which they are working in, um, managing limited budgets, and really demonstrating far more capacity to manage and to deal with ongoing situations than, excuse me, I'm not trying to offend them, but than the bureaucrats sitting uh, in central government ministries uh, without any pressure on them, saying that local institutions don't have capacity. So, I mean, that's the kind of maybe a bit of a cliche, uh, the way I put it, but I, I strongly agree with your argument there on the issue of capacity. Yeah, just to, uh, I mean, uh, highlight, uh, if you look at two types of financing, you know, just a straw man kind of thing, but this uh, pre-modern type of financing where municipalities get some debt from through national governments or through multilaterals and contracting is done upstairs and the municipality is saddled with an asset, debt servicing has been typically very poor, whether it's Chinese intergovernmental loans or intergovernmental loans in India or in Kenya. Have a look. All of them are pretty lousy. But if you look at modern financing, where the debt has come directly onto the municipal books, the mayor has taken responsibility. You will find that the, I mean, the most compelling evidence one can suggest is that if you look at India, for example, of the 15 municipal bonds which have been issued, not single instance of delay, let alone default as contrasted to other types of financing where it's dependent on somebody else. And the second point on corruption, yeah, if you look at empirical evidence, look at mayors who have borrowed money in small towns, I know one which is just outside Chennai called Alando, raised money for an underground sewer system, 5,000 bucks each uh, from 18,000 households, financed quarter of the capital cost of a sewer system and repaid the debt. Now, it's not just one guy, it's just lots of small, and therefore the cliche that local governments are corrupt, yes, of course there will be some mayors who are corrupt. I mean, of course, some guys will build statues of no significance. But if you do an empirical analysis of measured by time and cost overruns and servicing of debt, are locally financed projects, locally implemented projects, doing worse than those which have been done by central governments at the local level, I think it's worth a look and you'll be sure that at least in the cases which I have seen, there's even the weakest assertion is that there's no way that you can make the argument that uh, that um, though uh, there's a lack of capacity or there's more corruption or, you know, things are not just working because it's done at the local level. It's, it's not an argument which can be sustained with reference to facts. Absolutely, Rajivan. That's very clear. And I think it would be useful to put that information out there in a more systematic way. Yes, I think, I think you know, it's done because it's so missing. Yes, it is. And and I think, I mean, just to wind up to the final question or the final area, area, area of discussion, it is so missing and it's also so urgent because, as you and I know, we are facing a climate emergency right now. But not everybody gets the climate emergency still the mainstream narrative is, well, it's an interesting thing. Of course, it's important, but let's get on with think politics as usual and business as usual in the meantime. Now, the meaning of the word emergency, priority, means actually drop everything and deal with it. It is an emergency. And if one is to believe the science, then it is an emergency. And sooner or later, 
the world will wake up to this probably when it's almost too late or maybe it is too late and will come to the realization that in order to address this urgency, the scale of investment required at the local level will require a great deal more municipal finance instruments. Now, one of the obstacles to this right now is the international financing arrangements for public finance, the subnational account system, etc., which basically means that central governments are reluctant to allow local governments to borrow because even if they borrow domestically through the, the domestic bond market, for example, it, it, there's still some implicit contingent liability on central governments, which in theory or in practice even then limits the ability of central governments to borrow. And there is still this reluctance to free up local fiscal space. And the penny has not yet dropped that unless that local fiscal space is freed up, the country as a whole will not actually be able to put in place the infrastructure required to deal with this emergency. Take Bangladesh, for example. How are Bangladesh cities going to make themselves resilient without a a, a big increase in municipal finance instruments? Any thoughts on this from your side, Lajiman? Yeah, I agree with your basic premise that many of the, you know, the resilience infrastructure which needs to be done at the city and local level can't be designed, financed or created at higher levels of government. It's simply because, I mean, Bangladesh is an extremely good example. If I'm in Sillet or Cox Bazaar or let alone Dhaka, what kind of stormwater drain, what, what's the handling of the water or the levels is something which is no way can be planned, designed at uh, National headquarters. That's a well-taken premise. If that premise holds, that there needs to be some local planning, local designing, and local financing of this kind of environmental infrastructure. Then the second uh, premise follows logically, that central government has to open up borrowing capacity at local levels. And since you raised Bangladesh, borrowing capacity at local levels is again, uh, it's a broad term. Now, if the government of Bangladesh is transferring, let's say, $100 million to all its cities through the fiscal transfer system, through grants, and 80% of those uh, grants are already tied up, which is the case, because if you look at Bangladesh municipal finance system and you make a calculation of how much of these annual fiscal transfers are tied up, tied up in the sense that the government says you've got to invest these in roads or water or something or something something else it it basically clogs up the uh, municipality's capacity to plan for what it considers most vital and immediate like if i give 100 bucks to my daughter and say this is a grant to you but you've got to spend 75 bucks on a b c d and e then her her scope for imagination and uh, use is only on 25%. Therefore, Bangladesh, there is no hope with the current fiscal transfer system, even if, you know, as you say, it's difficult for to raise the amount of uh, money going to municipalities to increase it means cutting it somewhere else. All that's true. Even with such a budget constraint, the key question at the national level is, do I transfer $100 million of which 80 is my priority, 
or do I transfer 100? Oh, let's not say 100. Let's say 90, and say that my priorities are those which makes you resilient, and you decide the resilience. And uh, unfortunately, we don't. So, so that's one aspect of the design of the fiscal system at the national level, which even with limited quantities ties up the financing. and therefore makes local planning near impossible so that's one uh, and therefore the obvious way to go forward for climate change financing is to loosen up uh, and get rid of all those other ties i mean i hate to bring in other institutions but see if you look at bangladesh typically you'd find that there are about four or five world bank projects there were four or five adp projects they will pick the cities and the kinds of projects will be predetermined which has nothing to do with the local design and planning which need untied grants so basically yes so that's given the size of the envelope the second aspect is i think what you're raising is that if they become contingent liabilities on the uh, national government it reduces the capacity yeah but the whole idea of a municipal finance system is a non guarantee backed system did you you don't i mean if you look at the bonds which have been issued or the, since 1990s on this you know whether it's india or south africa little parts of mexico even hanoi the explicit uh under, it's not only a question of understanding explicit contracting and institutional arrangements are such that there's no recourse to national government now so far at least in most cases this has never been tried because the loans have never been defaulted but there's no fiscal sense in which if there is no guarantee or there's no comfort letter or there's no unending promise to pay off bondholders or you know other private sector lenders there is no reason in the normal accounting system to raise these as contingent liabilities so to the argument that in a technical accounting sense these cramp the fiscal capacity of the national government is would probably be suspect if there is no uh, guarantee in place but yes now the third more final question is at the national level given the urgency of climate and and obviously it probably affects some countries worse than others and within the country how do you design a grant system at the national level which allows for leverage for climate I mean, it sounds so convoluted the sentence but all it does mean is to say can the national government put aside whatever they are transferring as say x of the 100 million dollars something which is incentivizes leverage for climate change investments and these are to be determined at local levels because it's impossible i would suspect i'm not a scientist but being impossible to design extremely uh, you know the, uh, the resiliency kind of investment would vary across from place to place and you do need local ingenuity absolutely now rajivan thank you so much indeed i mean this is this is fundamental and i think one of the issues that we're trying to raise awareness about is the fact that the only way to accelerate our response to this crisis effectively is to look again at the whole issue of of municipal finance rajivan thank you so much indeed i really enjoyed this conversation and look forward to meeting you again 
soon. As always on this podcast, we ask a couple of um, binary questions at the end. Uh, you have to pick one of the two choices I'm going to give you, and you don't need to give an explanation why, although you're free to explain if you want. And this is just to end on a slightly different note. So the first question, Rajivan, is cricket or football? For football. Okay, that's a great answer. I take it you mean you don't... excitement of football. Okay, and uh, and you don't mean American football, I take it. You mean what they call soccer in no, the US, right? I mean, I mean, guys who can dribble from one end of the soccer field to the other and shoot. Absolutely. Okay, great. That's a very clear answer. And secondly, Rajivan, uh, were you to uh, be offered a, um, a week to sit and think and write about um, the issues of municipal finance, uh, would you prefer to do this in a log cabin in the mountains, uh, snow-capped mountains, or would you prefer to do it uh, on the beach with a view of the ocean? Well, can't I sit in a municipal office? You learn most from those guys. <laughs> <laughs> All what we say, we learn from others. And especially in municipal finance, whatever I've learned is from the guys there who hang out in these offices. Anyway, no, 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 the beach any day. I love the water. Oh, the beach, the beach over the mountains. Okay, interesting. Right. Well, thank you very much indeed. But uh, absolutely, I mean, why not write amongst the people? Why not sit down and write amongst the people who you're writing about? Rajivan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed it. And it was uh, a very insightful and a real privilege to be able to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Rajivan. Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week.